What's your go-to for the diagnosis of amniotic fluid volume? Is it the amniotic fluid index or the MVP, the maximal vertical pocket? Because even though the data seems to be pretty clear, in practice, there's still a lot of variability. Well, what does it matter? Well, it matters a lot. Because if we diagnose, for example, oligohydramnios, it may force an induction according to guidelines. But what if that patient doesn't really have oligohydramnios? So in this podcast, I thought we'd cover the distinctions between AFI and maximum vertical pockets. I know I've done something similar to this in the past, but I want to do it in a different way. You see, we're going to start off talking about the formation of amniotic fluid because it's different in the first trimester, in the second, and obviously in the third. And we're going to talk about norms. And we're going to answer the key question that's the title of this podcast. Is maternal oral hydration really a remedy for isolated oligohydramnios or is it just a myth? And again, we're going to focus on isolated oligohydramnios. Some people call that IO. And that's oligohydramnios without some other maternal condition. She's not diabetic. She's not hypertensive. The baby is not growth restricted. And obviously, she does not have ruptured membranes. All right. So here's what we're going to tackle amniotic fluid determination. We're going to tackle the mechanism of amniotic fluid formation. And then we're going to get into this issue of hydration. Does it work for isolated oligo or not? Here we go. Life is too short and too unpredictable to go through without some sort of vision or passion. If you don't know what your passion is, find it now. This is our passion. This is Clinical Pearls. This podcast topic idea comes from one of our podcast listeners, Nancy. Nancy sent me a message about amniotic fluid determination and rushing to induction of labor. It's a great question. Nancy, I hope this information helps you in your clinical practice. We appreciate your question, and this is how it should be, right? We should share ideas and share dilemmas because overall, we're just trying to do our best. Nancy, here goes your podcast. Now, even though we're going to cover a lot of data here, I encourage you, you got to listen till the very end because at the very end, there's an important disclosure about this that you cannot forget. Amniotic fluid is a dynamic phenomenon. It really is. Obviously, in the first trimester, this is a function of transudation of fluid across the amniotic membrane. This has to do with maternal pulse pressure and oncotic pressure. So that reduced amniotic fluid prior to 10 weeks, outside of some weird, you know, incomplete AB, is pretty rare because this gestational sac fluid is primarily derived from the fetal surface of the placenta. It's this trans amniotic flow from the maternal compartment and secretions from the surface of the body of the embryo into the amniotic sac. Now, that's an interesting point because we've had patients with incomplete miscarriages or inevitable miscarriages, you know, around 14 weeks or so, right at that cusp of first and second trimester, where the ER physician will call and say, look, there's severe oligo, uh, you know, something's going on. What? No, there isn't. Oligo is a term left for after 20 weeks of gestation. You don't have oligo at 14 weeks. That's just a miscarriage. So that's where this term gets confusing. Honestly, the determination of amniotic fluid really shouldn't be an issue until about 15 weeks and up. In the second trimester, fetal urine begins to enter the amniotic sac and the fetus begins to swallow amniotic fluid in this recycling phenomenon. 
So disorders that are related to the fetal, renal, or the urinary system can begin to play a prominent role here in the etiology of oligohydramnios. So a baby that has, for example, renal agenesis or multicystic kidney disease, they may have low urine production, and that's where oligohydramnios begins. That's why it's an issue of mid-pregnancy and not before. Remember that severe oligohydramnios, especially under 20 weeks, is ultimately, unfortunately, and tragically fatal for the child because that fluid not only allows for a healthy intrauterine environment, but obviously helps for pulmonary development. As that fluid is drawn in, it helps with alveolar development. So you get this pulmonary hypoplasia, and it's devastating. So if there's anything like low fluid, mainly because of ruptured membranes in the early second trimester, there's just no chance for survival and the risk of infection is obviously high. One of the other things to keep in mind for this mid-second trimester development of oligohydramnios is a possibility of fetal anomalies, specifically trisomy 13, which has been associated with oligo. So if the mother has not yet had genetic screening, then it's something to think about because these genetic abnormalities have definitely been associated with early second or early third trimester oligohydramnios. In the late second or early third trimester, fetal growth restriction is a big cause of oligohydramnios as a reflection of uteroplacental insufficiency. Remember that there are also some maternal infections that could infect the child. Torch testing really has kind of fallen out of favor for eval of a lot of conditions, especially stillbirth, because they're so broad. But especially if the child on ultrasonographic evaluation has suspicion of some malformation, it's something to think about to do a torch panel. Toxo, rubella, cytomegalovirus, herpes simplex virus, and parvo B19 can infect the fetus and it can be associated with second or third trimester oligo. But of course, this is typically an association with some other fetal evidence of infection. Remember that in the third trimester, the fetal contribution to amniotic fluid is predominant. And amniotic fluid has a progressive increased trend in its volume until about 32 to 34 weeks, where it kind of plateaus. From 36 weeks onward, there's actually a slow, steady decline in amniotic fluid, so that pregnancies that are late-term or post-term, oligohydramnios is a real concern. In that case, it has to do more with placental senescence or uteroplacental developing some insufficiency. Well, now that we've covered the mechanism of amniotic fluid formation and some potential causes of low fluid, let's get into the diagnosis because this may irritate somebody, but sorry, it's the data because some people love AFI and others are MVP fans like me. And that's why I call it the MVP. I mean, it just is the MVP. Boy, that's tacky, isn't it? It's the maximum vertical pocket, or as I like to teach it, the most valuable player. Because I just think it has much more value than AFI, and I'm going to explain why. See, this is why when my assistant is with me and we're doing this podcast, they look at me like, can't you just read the Dagon script? Just stop going off script, because then I get these tangents. Okay, back to the story. There are actually two ways to determine amniotic fluid volume. And I don't mean AFI and MVP. Those are two ways under the type of objective criteria. But there's objective criteria and actually subjective criteria. 
subjective suspicion of amniotic fluid volume by experienced examiners actually has similar diagnostic accuracy for diagnosing reduced amniotic fluid as compared to dye dilution methods. And that's the gold standard. So if you've done a lot of saunas, you're pretty comfortable and you say, you know, globally, my assessment that this is low, you're pretty much going to be accurate and diagnose oligo. It also tends to follow the same accuracy trends for polyhydramnios. So remember, for diagnosis, there's objective methods and subjective methods, but subjective methods only is as good as the experience of the examiner. Under the objective trends, of course, as we've already alluded to, there's the amniotic fluid index and the maximal vertical pocket. Traditionally, AFI is considered low or oligohydramnios at an AFI of 5, and the maximal vertical pocket defines oligo as the maximal vertical pocket less than 2 centimeters when there's at least 1 centimeter clearance in that vertical dimension. All right. So remember, if you're going to diagnose using an MVP, it has to be deepest vertical pocket of two centimeters or less for oligo. And there has to be no cord or fetal component in a one centimeter thick band in that vertical strip. Now, a quick word about anhydramnios. Remember, that's the most extreme end of oligo where there's a complete lack of amniotic fluid and you can't even do any single deepest pocket or maximal vertical pocket. So that's a whole different issue. The worst prognosis, of course, is with anhydramnios. Regarding the two methods for diagnosis, AFI and MVP, it appears based on the data that AFI tends to overly diagnose oligohydramnios, while ironically, MVP tends to overdiagnose polyhydramnios. So some say, look, you can do a maximal vertical pocket, and if there's a suspicion for poly, which is a maximal vertical pocket more than 8 centimeters, then do a full AFI. And others say, well, if you get an AFI and it's a volume less than 5 centimeters, then do maximal vertical pocket. But that gets confusing. According to the college in SMFM, the one that has the most association with adverse perinatal outcomes is not AFI. It's actually the maximal vertical pocket. So I choose AFI when I'm doing a rate of growth, but I leave a maximal vertical pocket for all types of antepartum fetal surveillance. Remember that the diagnosis of oligohydramnios, according to ACOG and SMFM in the biophysical profile or the modified biophysical profile, is actually not an AFI. It actually prefers a maximal vertical pocket of 2 centimeters or less. And the reason is, is that that is the one, again, that's more tied to adverse perinatal outcomes compared to AFI. Okay, okay. If you are one of those AFI people, I got no beef with you. I'm just following the data because that was actually published in the Journal of Maternal, Fetal, and Neonatal Medicine in 2021. According to the authors of this meta-analysis, they compared the maximal vertical pocket versus AFI for predicting adverse perinatal outcomes in pregnancies with oligohydramnios, and they found that the maximal vertical pocket was associated with a lower rate of pregnancy interventions without any increase in adverse pregnancy outcomes. And, you know, as the famous verse says, oh, there's nothing new under the sun. Because that wasn't a new finding in 2021. The Cochrane Systematic Review published that very same thing in 2008. According to that Cochrane Review, quote, 
the single maximal vertical pocket in the assessment of amniotic fluid during fetal surveillance seems a better choice since the use of the amniotic fluid index increases the rate of diagnosis of oligohydramnios and the rate of induction of labor without improvement in peripartum outcomes. And so remember, one of the ways to reduce the possible inductions for oligohydramnios as its sole indication, well, that's to use a maximal vertical pocket because we're less likely to overcall oligo without any change in adverse perinatal outcomes. And here's another interesting tidbit or interesting fact about MVP over AFI. There's data that fetal position affects the measurement of AFI, but not the maximal vertical pocket. So the maximal vertical pocket may be more consistent parameter for the estimation of fetal amniotic fluid. That has been published back in 2006 and following years. But that was an ultrasound in obstetrics and gynecology. And the lead author was FOK, that is F-O-K, F-O-K. Folk in ultrasounds in obstetrics and gynecology. Well, now that we've covered all that, let's get into maternal hydration because I've heard it before and I know you have too. Oh, fluid's a little low. And then the mom says, but I haven't drank enough water. Does that really matter? Well, it actually does, especially in the summer, because ironically, there tends to be an uptrend in inductions of labor for oligohydramnios or isolated oligohydramnios. Again, remember, no other medical or obstetrical condition going on in the summer. It is true. Those are trends that have been well published. So I'm going to tell you now how hydration, maternal hydration, may be a remedy for otherwise uncomplicated, isolated oligohydramnios. Let's do that next. I have to preface this that this is not in cases of suspected ruptured membranes or in cases where there's maternal comorbidities. Remember, this has to do with IO, which is isolated oligohydramnios. Mom's fine, otherwise low risk, no fetal issues that you know of, baby's not growth restricted, and then you find low fluid incidentally. This is where oral hydration actually does have data as a non-invasive intervention before rushing straight to induction. Talking about induction, the ACOG, and I do stick with ACOG guidelines, does recommend an induction of labor late preterm or early term for isolated, otherwise uncomplicated oligohydramnios. And remember, in the guidelines, they use not AFI, but the deepest vertical pocket less than two centimeters. So if you find isolated oligo at 36 weeks in one day, why am I talking about oral hydration? Well, because if she's otherwise uncomplicated, right, this is isolated oligo, it's a lot to gamble that you got that AFI or maximum vertical pocket correct on that one time. Plus, if her cervix is not prepared and if she's just not ready, then it buys you some time before you rush right into a scheduled induction. Now, let me be very clear. I'm not going against ACOG and I'm not saying you shouldn't induce I'm saying if there's no other maternal or fetal comorbidities, putting all the eggs in the basket with one ultrasound read is a lot to gamble. When it's best, it could be more conservative to give the mother oral hydration, again, assuming she's not ruptured, and simply rechecking it because it can buy you more time. There's a lot of iatrogenic inductions for isolated oligo that if you actually look at the data, probably could have gone a couple of days as long as the maternal and fetal compartment were stable. And I have to say this because I don't want somebody to send me some weird, ugly message, okay? No, I'm not talking about oral hydration for ruptured membranes. My goodness, didn't you hear my disclosures before? This is, has to do with isolated oligo. 
Whew, now that we've cleared all that, let's get into oral hydration data. Yep, there's good data for that. Rapid oral hydration in women with no other high-risk factors has been found to be effective in increasing amniotic fluid volume, or MVP. Intake of 250 mLs of water or another hypotonic solution in 15 minutes for a total of 2 liters in 2 hours has been documented to lead to an increase in amniotic fluid in both oligohydramnios and normohydramnios cases. And this has, of course, minimal risks to the mother and to the child. Hydration with water reduces maternal plasma osmolarity and it increases uteroplacental perfusion. Maternal hydration has the advantage over other interventions because it's cheaper, it's easily accessible, it's non-invasive, doesn't require hospitalization, and you don't have to commit to an induction of labor based on one read. A meta-analysis on the efficacy of maternal hydration strategies for improving amniotic fluid volume found that maternal hydration was most effective in pregnancies with isolated oligo, there it is, and that hypotonic solutions were more effective than isotonic ones. So you don't have to reach for the sports drinks or the Gatorade, just regular old water or hypotonic solutions. The reference for that meta-analysis comes from 2015 out of Plus One, with the lead author being Gizo, that's G-I-Z-Z-O. Yeah, there really is a correlation between the diagnosis or trends in diagnosis of oligohydramnios during hot seasons. In other words, in the Texas summer, you're more likely to diagnose oligohydramnios based on which two you use. And some of that has to do with maternal dehydration. So maternal volume stores definitely does have a correlation to amniotic fluid volume. But again, remember, this is outside of any existing comorbidities. All right, podcast family, as we get ready to wrap this up, a quick word again about that ACOG recommendation for delivery timing. For patients with isolated idiopathic oligo, it is a recommendation to deliver at 36 weeks and zero days up to 37 weeks and six days or later if diagnosed then. Although induction of an unfavorable cervix may increase the length of labor, there is insufficient evidence, according to experts, to assure us that perinatal outcomes and continued conservative management of oligo at term is comparable to that with delivery. So because of that, we err on the side of caution and go ahead and proceed with an induction of labor because we're trying to prevent undiagnosed uteroplacental insufficiency, cord accident, or placental abruption. So once again, I'm not going against the college, but I'm simply saying that if we diagnosed oligohydramnios with AFI, consider verifying that with an MVP. And if it's low, in the absence of some other comorbid condition, consider maternal hydration and rechecking before we commit her to delivery 100% without a doubt. And I have to say this, listen, if you find isolated oligo at a gestational age greater than 38 weeks, and especially at 39 weeks or more, then please offer her induction. I mean, you're not going to gain anything at that time. Send her for the induction of labor or do that repeat C-section if it's indicated. Don't wait. This issue of oral hydration is to try to buy you time in the late preterm or early term interval. But don't apply this to somebody who is 38 weeks or more. That's why ACOG says consider delivery at 36 weeks up to 37 weeks and 6 days or any time that you find it after that. And here's why. There is a direct correlation between the degree of oligo and adverse perinatal outcomes. So don't play the oral hydration game after 38 weeks. 
this is just something to consider, especially again in that early 36-week interval when you're just not sure. And rather than committing her to an early delivery, try oral hydration and then recheck it because the majority of the time it will be okay. All right. So I had to clarify that. There's a time and a place for this intervention and I don't want that to be misunderstood. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. As always, we appreciate you. Thanks for listening and supporting this podcast. And thanks for your questions and comments. It keeps us going. Nancy, I hope this information was helpful. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.